welcome to the June episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. For midsummer, we're going to be t- talking mythology, epic journeys, and fantasy literature. The books we'll be talking about today take us far in space and time from where we are in the Berlin offices mm-hmm. on quite a rainy day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're here um, at Berlin, which is one of Scotland's leading independent publishers. This uh, the sp- sponsors of this podcast and uh, we're celebrating uh, our company's 25th anniversary in 2017. Yes, happy birthday to us. And in this episode we'll be discussing Naomi Mitchison's Travel Light, um, a book uh, for children which was published in 1952. Um, we'll also be joined by a very special guest, our own author Joan Lennon, whose latest book Walking Mountain was just released this month. And um, uh, Joan's previous book for teenagers, Silverskin, was published a couple of years ago in the very first year of our children's imprint, BC Books. And even more excitingly, it was shortlisted for the Scottish Teenage Book Prize in 2017. So Walking Mountain, a fantastic novel for uh, young teens, is a book that begins with the end of the world. So we'll be talking to Joan about that in the second half of this episode. But Travel Lines by Naomi Mitchison, yeah. is a bit of a genre-defying tale. Mm. It's part Norse myth, it's part Eastern adventure tale, and I think it's kind of part of a Bildung's romance yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the story of Hala, who is abandoned by her parents and brought up under the guardianship of first her bear nurse Matuli, yeah. then a dragon named Ugi. I assume it's Ugi. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, when and she lives with the dragons for a while, and when men come to plunder the dragon's treasure, the Valkyrie Steinvor uh, also appears to claim the fallen heroes uh, and take them to Valhalla for in waiting, really, for the All-Father's last battle. Uh, appearing throughout the story, the Valkyrie repeatedly tries to recruit Halla to the troop. <laughs> um, but after the defeat of the dragons, Halla sets out with Odin the Wanderer, uh, uh, who sort of issues a vague prophecy mm. that something is going to happen in seven times seven generations. <laughs> and he gives her some advice. And the piece of advice is absolutely crucial. And he says to her, Travel light, my child, as the wanderer travels light, and his love will be with you. And from this point on, Halla enters the world of men. Yeah. She, and the sort of story starts to change. Yeah, yeah. The character of the book changes a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, She travels to Constantinople. She makes friends with three men who have come from the fictional town. Land. Yes. (laughs) um, Of Marob, uh, which also appears in her sort of one of her most popular novels for adults ah. the corn king and the spring oh, queen okay. the spring queen and yeah, the corn yeah, king yeah. um uh and they've come as envoys to the sultan to the ottoman sultan to complain about the bad governor in their land uh these four people team up to escape the city and begin their journey home uh, through lots of sort of fantastical <laughs> yes. scheming yes. for cash. Um, <laughs> and uh, when they get when they return home, one Tarkander, who is a very important character, uh, decides not to return to his home because it's been laid waste and his true love has been killed. 
he and Halla journey on towards, um, well, further north, uh, towards a city that's known as Holmgard, uh, but it also goes by the name of Novgorod. Uh, and Tarkandar is keen to stay there, serve the prince and marry Halla. Uh, and she isn't quite sure how to feel about this. <laughs> yeah, and, to feel <laughs> uh, Noticing how the world has changed uh, and that she doesn't want to be married, she decides to join the Valkyries to carry on travelling. Yeah, so it doesn't... It wrong foots the usual fairy tale stereotypes completely. Absolutely. But it's still full of wonder and adventure and strange happenings. Yep. <laughs> but um, so, a little bit about Naomi Mitchison herself um, before we speak more um, in detail of Travel Light. Naomi Mitchison is a remarkable woman too. She is... She's... She's you, you could call her a 20th century fox. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. She, I think she, she would have loved that. <laughs> she lived uh, her whole life in the 20th century, pretty much. She was born in 1897 and died in 1999. And just as her life is full and rich, her literary output is just as vast. She wrote so many books that she herself wasn't able to keep count or remember them. <laughs> And she lived in a whirl of activity and she was bold and dangerous and exciting and um, probably sometimes quite challenging and infuriating to people as well. Um, so she was born in Edinburgh in 1897 into the very distinguished Haldane family, um, who were quite a dynasty. And in fact, Berlin, we will be publishing a book about the whole family um, later on in August called The Haldanes of Glen Eagle. Um, yeah, there was a lot of landed gentry in there, very uh, lots of political establishment figures in there, yeah. but a lot of also very well-known and well-respected scientists in our family as well. Um, and Naomi Mitchell's father himself, um, his work on lung disease uh, diagnosed the killers in the mines and the mills of industrialised Britain. So they were very much a full part of, of British life in the 20th century. Yeah, and a progressive part yeah. as well. Like, mm-hmm. his work, I think, improved the lot yeah. of people who were otherwise would have been killed in the course of their jobs. Yeah, and yeah. Naomi Mitchison absolutely took that to heart throughout her life and her writing career. Yeah. Um, she was mostly brought up in Oxford and was the only girl in her class at the Dragon Prep School, Whoa, which um, where Emma Watson went to school. Hermione <laughs> went to school there. I just, I kind of love that part. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's just kind of, kind of full circle I can with totally the whole see. dragon slaying wizards and all that kind of thing. Um, but Naomi studied biology at university. She was particularly interested in genetics, but she changed her mind when the First World War broke out and she um, became a nurse. And it was during the war that she married her husband, Gilbert Mitchison, who was also part of another extremely well-connected family. Um, he, after the war, um, he was injured in the war and he became a QC, a Labour politician and a life peer. But less of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naomi's writing career um, began in 1923 with the publication of her first novel, The Conquered, which is a historical novel set in first century BC Gaul during the the, the Gallic Wars of Julius Caesar. Um, and she herself is probably best known as a historical novelist, um, with her most celebrated work being uh, The Conquering Spring Queen, which we mentioned earlier. Um, that one was published in 1931. But she was not a woman to be pinned down, and her writing travels through many, many genres. Um, she wrote poetry, she wrote plays, her memoirs are really, really celebrated, um, her diaries are fascinating too. 
Um, and she also wrote a, a, done a lot of travel writing and really interesting foray into science fiction as well with her memoirs of a space woman, which I've heard describe as um, uh, her uh, she that she was the the Virginia Woolf of sci-fi, which is very interesting. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, having read um, a bit of memoirs, I can quite understand yeah. that one. I've been I've been thinking because. Her novels are, uh, you know, her writing career began in the 1920s. Mm. I was thinking about her as sort of being in step with the Bloomsbury group. Yeah. You know, and I wonder if Orlando is like the Virginia Woolf novel that is in some ways like Ah. closest to... And Naomi Mitchison's yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, very Maybe. interior, but all about transformation and yeah. changing worlds. And yeah, um, but she was also a compulsive article writer as well, because she was <laughs> involved in so many causes um, throughout her life as a socialist, as an anti-fascist, um, very much as a, as a feminist. She was sympathetic to Scottish independence. She campaigned against apartheid. She was very much involved in the local politics of Argyll once the family had set up their estate in Caradale in Kentucky. And I think she even served on the council. Um, and she became a sort of advisor, tribal mother to the Bagatia tribe of Botswana as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just so many twists and turns in her Absolutely. life. There's just not enough time here in this podcast to get to the fullness of her life and work. But we'll try a little tiny, tiny bit. <laughs> but she was an absolute force of energy and all these interests completely filter through in her writing. Yes, absolutely. Um... But again, we're concentrating today on travel light, which, unsurprisingly, after all of that, <laughs> is not your usual children's story. Not at all. <laughs> well, you, you hear it's a children's book, and so you come with it with a certain expectation, and then you start reading it, and it's... Yes. Yeah. We should have tested it out on some children. <laughs> yeah. We should have done a focus group. <laughs> well, I don't know if the parents would be happy about no, that. No, I think <laughs> probably not. But reading as an adult, you notice so many things yeah. about actually how just how beautifully constructed it is mm. and how uh, so many complex issues are approached in this really searching manner that mm. you just wouldn't necessarily have noticed as a child. Yeah. Um, but right from the first sentence... Uh, really, um, this sort of difference is apparent. And the first sentence of uh, the book is, It is said that when the new queen saw the old queen's baby daughter, she told the king that the brat must be got rid of at once. (laughs) Which is, you know... Your usual fairy tale, but not your usual fairy tale. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so here we've got an evil stepmother. Yeah. Um, and but then also like the trope of exposing a baby and leaving it to die, which yeah. is at the base, the beginning of the Oedipus myth, and mm. that goes so well for everyone. <laughs> um, but there's this wonderful snap at the end, yeah. like the use of the word brat there. Yeah. Um, and in the sort of reported speech, yeah. you know, um, it's really characteristic of Mitchison also to be sort of mythical and slangy yeah. um, within the same sentence. There's a casualness sometimes, like it's really well constructed, but then there's like this sort of throwaway sort of ca- yeah. carelessness, but sort of a casual mm-hmm. 
it's almost a disdain or an anger to to the usual things that yeah it's quite flip yeah. and it's also very quick as well yeah. I, i'm not sure how much she revised her work no no i think it just sort of poured out yeah yeah i think that too and one of my favorite encounters is in the first encounter with Steenborn, the Valkyrie who I quite like actually um, and, and she seized Hala by the arm and began hauling her over the horse like a land girl with a calf <laughs> which is just great, it's a very good 1952 post-war simile yeah, but not, not, not your usual sort of fairy tale um, no, and imagery. It's, it's very visual yeah. um, and it seems like Mitchison certainly writes like very modern fairy tales yeah. um, or she modernises them mm. um, um, and some of her fairy tales, uh, which uh, are collected by Marina Warner in a volume um, in a Princeton series, mm-hmm. um, which is titled Oddly Modern Fairy Tales. <laughs> and she seems to me to be, um, you know, what's the right word? Uh, uh, an avatar of this genre. Yeah. Um, and in that collection, uh, there's a Hansel and Gretel story, and it's actually just called Hansel and Gretel, set against the backdrop of union strikes in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah. You know, they can't eat because their father is on strike. Or, right. Yeah. And they get the, the witch takes them prisoner and they spend the night in the witch's house and it's full of money. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> it's sort of really compelling, but also bare bones. Mm. You know, it's like, it's, yeah... It's interesting. Travel light is better. Um, uh, and I think the thing about Mitchison is that she was a lover of teller, lover and teller of stories yeah. uh, from all times and places. Mm. She was a classical scholar. She was steeped in northern mythology and in eastern tales. Yeah, and she really plays with the the internal expectations of folk and fairy tales, you know, in travel light, you know. You expect there to be heroes and heroines and princes mm. and kings and queens. But in Travel Light, the heroes are considered the baddies throughout the book. You know, if yeah. you're a hero, you're somebody that's actually well, a destroyer be... of the world. Yes. And um, the dragons, who um, the character of Hala spends a lot of her um, childhood with, are not to be feared. And, and in fact, there's a bit where she talks about the dragons being slain and it's seen as a bad thing because really the dragons just want a quiet life, hoarding yes. wealth and gold and jewels and things like that. And um, so I'll, I'll read out a little bit about this. But mankind became rebellious. Kings and champions and heroes, unfairly armed with flame-resisting armour and unpleasant lances, were encouraged by certain underground elements and against the wishes and interests of the bulk of the population to interfere between a princess and dragon. Occasionally this resulted in tragedies, as in the case of the good dragon who was killed by man George, or the dragon so cruelly done to death by Perseus when about to make the acquaintance of Andromeda. It could be verified that no princess was ever asked whether she wanted to be rescued and carried off by a dragon slayer to a fate, no doubt, worse than death. (laughs) Yes, that encompasses it so well. Yeah. Sometimes, too, a dragon was murdered in cold blood, as happened quite recently to the dragon Fafner, an uncle of Gox and a master dragon who was rudely awakened and brutally stabbed by a young man called Siegfried, who, however, came to no good end himself. Paging Wagner. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just wonderful. Like Perseus and St. George, right? Yeah. Um, And the idea of consent. (laughs) Yeah, and, and the notion that maybe these princesses should be 
they would probably want to be adventurers and not married happily ever after to these princes. So it's very much a precursor to the to the work of writers such as Angela Carter or or, or reminiscent of um, other writers of her of the period, um, like Sylvia Townsend Warner or something like that. Mm. And it's also quite adult for a book that's considered a story for children. And the language too, um, there's quite a few swearies in there and and just like name calling that you're just, you know, raises a little bit of an eyebrow for for younger readers. And some of the violence is quite graphically written and the morals around the violence are quite hazy for a children's book, um, which are usually a little bit more clear about the goodies and the baddies and what violence means. Um, So... I'll read a little bit here, which is Hala's first encounter with fighting men, and she watches as the Valkyries and the men are fighting. And this is um, Hala's thoughts while um, uh, she watches the fight. She watched him fight, hoping that as many as possible would be killed, and while the cattle scattered and the women screamed and tugged at their bonds... The sun that had glinted on lifted axe and shield rim now clouded over, and through a thunderclap, a Valkyrie's horse came leaping. She hovered over by the oak tree. Steenvor glanced over and leant down easily towards Hala, her hands loose on the rein. Watch me get him, she said. Then she circled round the battle, gave one shaking yell, clapped in her heels and shot down. Leaning out of the saddle, she gripped a man in mid-fall and yanked him up onto the horse. His head fell back on one side, blood splashing out of a great gash in his throat. The horse flapped back towards Hala's oak tree. She looked at the dead man and saw with satisfaction that it was her hero, the son of the king of the of the dales. She hoped the wound had hurt him before she died. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, the film version Mm. of a fairy tale, you know, Uh, where suddenly you have to, like, literalise or, um, you know, do scene by scene what would actually happen in a fairy tale. And suddenly there's all this historical detail or detail (laughs) that has to be accounted for and, like, bad things are happening. I know. And and the fact that Haller herself is not troubled by this violence and Mm -hmm. throughout the novel... Her her own uh, reactions to things are not like the sort of usual female character that you get in a in a in a fairy tale, which is quite passive and quite disapproving yeah. of 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 these adventurous things that you have to do. And the Valkyries too. I mean, you can tell that Naomi Mitchison absolutely loves writing Steenvor and me yeah. myself when I was reading it because she's really jaunty isn't she as yeah. well she's like I just popped down on my unicorn yeah, no my she, pegasus yeah and even yeah. though she try, she keeps trying to um, recruit her and, and Halla says no she wants to keep travelling but the Steenvor seems to always arrive just at the right point to save yes. her at some point just, just to sort of keep, and it's always a note that you know, I'm I'm here and I will always be here to Yes. Yeah. And and it's not so much that she's in like mortal danger. No. It's just a reminder. It's yeah. like Yeah, know. here I am. Yeah, <laughs> and these Valkyries are seen as fearsome and fearless. But it's like she's like, I've got your back too. And funnily, when I was reading it, um it was just after um Anita Pallenberg had died. Uh-huh. Um, the famous uh, it girl of yes. the rock and roll world of the sixties. <laughs> 
And one of the quotes that was used in the obituaries and things was Keith Richards referring to Anita Pallenberg as a Valkyrie. So when I was reading oh, this, I was just so a, funny. <laughs> yeah, so well, I was picturing Anita Pallenberg on a horse, and I could, and it was it just seemed so perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean to be kind of even more like mass cultural about it. Yeah. Um, this is the month in which Wonder Woman has come out. Exactly, you know? and so much has been made that no matter what that film's limitations are, mm. you know, this is the first super superhero big blockbuster movie in this age of superhero movies yeah. you know this recent renaissance of um the superhero genre or comic book movies um you know this is the first one to focus on a female character in and it's just but it's just lovely to uh, lovely to read Naomi Richardson so unapologetic about the multitudes contained within female characters in in literature while using a genre that so obviously has its stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I think that this sort of historical sweep here is, um, you know, like the detail comes from it being a sort of fully imagined world yeah you know it's like the story is actually happening and people are living these changes mm. you know so the battle is between gods and men or yeah. mythical creatures and men and it's like a time of it's a transition yeah. it's like the end of the dragon world yeah yeah pretty much although Hala doesn't know it as that not yet anyway. um yeah. and you know i think i think that one of the things that is going on there throughout travel light although it's um, sort of submerged, you know, uh, is that um, this is a story of historical transition, and that was something that her historical novels um, really focused on. Probably a lot of her novels, like there's certain elements of that in Memoirs of a Space Woman as well. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so as we said uh, before, the her first novel, The Conquered. Um, is a sort of rewrite or a turning round of, like, the great schoolroom Latin text, <laughs> Caesar's Conquest of Gaul, written from the point of view of the conquered rather than the conqueror. Yeah. So, um, you know, I suppose it's kind of like Asterix <laughs> as well, <laughs> um, except for it's not at all. Um, and uh, Naomi Mitchison is really interested in the Celts. Mm. You know, these Gauls uh, have connections with Ireland and Britain and um, what have you. And... Um, you know, rather than being especially interested in, like, the Roman side of the story, she's much more interested um, in the cultures that have sort of left fragments of their stories mm. rather than the written record. Um, and they t and these stories tend to be about the riches, richness of these cultures, even at, like, the moments of their defeat and decay and mm. as they're passing on. Yeah. The underdog. Yeah forgotten <laughs> the forgotten <laughs> um so uh but like back to travel light as we've said um it's more richly detailed than like a short fairy tale yeah um and i think it becomes less and less of a fairy tale as it progresses yeah um though of course it does keep its mythological background mm, all you're the still, way through you know, high tales of high seas and strange beings and talking to animals and <laughs> yes right that never goes away yeah and her ability to speak all languages yeah as well um but at the same time 
that it becomes much more novelistic and realistic in a set in a weird way. Yes. Yeah. No. No. You're absolutely right there. And as she travels with the three men from Morocco. Yeah. Um. And as her and interestingly, I think as she like as this one-on-one relationship with the man Tarkin Dare, um, develops. Um, it does really become quite novelly, mm. novelistic. Yeah. Um, it becomes about how her sympathy with this man might affect her life more generally. Yeah. Um, and its onward course. Um, and uh, and in sort of in a in in a minute in miniature and in a fantasy setting, travel light asks really searching questions about marriage and the trajectory of of women's lives, which a lot of her books or concentrated on as well but also it's quite a sophisticated subject matter for what is ostensibly supposed to be a children's book yeah well and <laughs> i think the treatment of it is so subtle yeah really yeah. um and you know uh, there's a way of you know not you don't have to say it's all about marriage because no. in some ways um it's really about her search for identity yeah that's the sort of main Threat. thrust of the of the of the narrative yeah yeah definitely um and she moves from world to world or sort of community to community her name changes yeah in the beginning she's ha- when she's brought up by a bear her bear nurse yeah she's Halla bears bairn yeah <laughs> um and then later she's Harlow Heroes Bane and then Hal's God's Gift yeah and there are loads more yeah, as yeah. well um, and she herself sort of when she's on her travels is wondering constantly which species which people are the ones that she identifies with yeah <laughs> and um, Naomi Mitchison writes this sort of beautiful thing about that um, she becomes used to the dragon's long memories and their sense of history. Uh, And this is what she says. Um, For another while, Halla wandered in the forest, living on eggs and mice, berries and nuts and roots, bear's food. She talked to all the birds and beasts whose language she knew, but their lives lacked seriousness and above all, memory. And she was used to the centuries of the dragons in which each year might be memorable for something gained and in which there were long-laid plans for the furthering of the right order of things between dragons and mankind. Birds did not have memories, although memory had them, forcing them blindly and willingly into strange actions, sending them on journeys of many thousand miles and through every kind of danger, or fixing air routes to and from their nests, so that if the nests were moved only a short way, memory would relentlessly keep them from even so much change as would save their chilling eggs and nestlings. That was no world for Halla, even though it might be full of immediate bodily emotions, which memory translated into delightful action and enchanting song. The dragons did not sing, and Halla had never sung, but now she would mimic the birds, trying to repeat and answer their memory songs. Yet, for all this beauty, she did not want to be a bird. That was one of my favourite bits as well. I folded down the page there too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's just... It's just good. Yeah. It seems like she's in amongst all these different, uh, like, groups. Mm. Dragons and bears. And and, and she's really not sure. Um, But she's absorbed 
different different behaviors yeah from all of them yeah and she has different instincts yeah like like when she when tarkin dare is feeling a bit um uh, sad sad the way she describes how she feels sympathy for her is really great yeah like it's so different to when you read it you were just like okay yeah so let me read this okay and it really makes you almost want to root for this relationship yeah as well i mean she's really confused by mm. the feelings she has for him yeah so Tarkandar has been talking and um she's been listening to him talk about his lost love yeah. whose name is sweet feather and halla thinks there was a terrible pain in his voice It reminded Halla of a wound hurt. She wanted suddenly to lick the hurt place with a soft, warm bear's tongue, to lick it clean and into the shape of healing. But there was no wound on him that could be seen, nothing she could do but lay a hand on his shoulder uncertainly. He put up his own two hands and gripped hard for a moment on hers, and fear came choking up in her as he did it, Fear, because for a moment he had seemed to her like a hero, and her hand went still as woodcock chick hiding among leaves at a step coming. Yet gently he loosed her, and she knew that it was only his wound speaking to the scar of her own. That's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And complex. Yeah. <laughs> the tra- I mean, the different species of 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 people in this book mentioned there and the way their behavior is um talked about throughout the book and in that moment as well and well it's it's, really precise isn't it yeah it's precise and it's but it's all it all comes from the tumbling nature of everything that's gone on before Mm -hmm. and the history of the place and the the what the heroes mean what the bears mean it's and yet what love means as well, and sympathy, and yeah. empathy. And, and it's, you know, I think it's so interesting how that evolves into the um, discussion that they have yeah. um, about marriage. Yeah. Well, I mean, she ref- well, you heard earlier that she referred to it as a fate worse than death yeah. for the princesses. <laughs> and, and that sort of operates. And, you know, when he says... Is it not right that we should travel? That if we should travel together always, we should be married? <laughs> you know, and she thinks about it for a little while. She thinks about her, like the possibility of her her life, her future, mm. in terms of options. Yeah. Of, you know, living in a bear's den. Safety. Or, like you know, and would she? But would she want a house? Yeah. You know, does she want this sort of really easily domestic mm. view of what's he going to do? He's going to work for the prince and <laughs> um, and then... Uh, and become a hero. Yeah, yeah, basically. Which is, no. She says, you know, she would have liked a den safe under rocks and fir, bushes, fir branches, the smell of one's den coming richly over the snow. And Matuli bear, her nurse, wanting to lick her to sleep with a hot tickle of tongue. But would a house feel the same? Did all father mean her to live in a house? No one can travel light with a house on their back. <laughs> Not even a snail. That is true. <laughs> Hello, uh, we 
are joined by the just wonderful Joan Lennon, who has come to talk to us uh, all the way from Fife today. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Joan's novel for younger readers is published this month. We are talking about a brand new book from BC Books, yep. Berlin's children's imprint. This is just a fantastic, epic, sweeping journey. Wonderful adventure. About what happens after the world comes to an end. Yeah. <laughs> it starts with the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, which is um, just such a wonderful uh, concept. Yeah. 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 So the book is called Walking Mountain. It is now available in all good bookshops and online right now. Um, and so we thought we'd bring in Joan and just to say, what made you think of this book? How, how did you think to yourself, I know, I'm going to start with the end of the world and then see what happens? Well, it's often really hard to remember exactly where a story started, especially when it's one like Walking Mountain, which mm. took a very long time to end up in its final form. I've lived with this story one way or another for about a decade. Oh, really? As long as that? Oh, yes. Wow. Now, I've been living with lots of other books over the same time. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to think that's the only thing I've been doing. Yeah. But a book takes as long as it takes. Yeah. And this one was a slow boil. But looking back, I can see where some of the elements um, of Walking Mountain came from. And one was a scene from the very first Planet Earth series where David Attenborough is way up in the Himalayas. I don't know if you remember this, this mm. scene. And he reaches down and he picks up a fossil off the ground and it's a marine fossil. It's from the right. bottom of the sea. Right. Because as we know, because um, David told us, <laughs> um, India split off from ancient Gondwana about 180 million years ago uh, and moved northwards until about... 50 million years ago, it banged into Asia. Right. And then it kept on going, <laughs> pushing up uh, some of the tallest mountains in the world. And that, that image of David on the top of a mountain holding what was basically an ancient seashell yeah. Yeah. Um, hung around in my head. And then there was a scene that came into my mind years and years ago of someone hearing someone else crying inside a mountain just that no mm. context no idea who was mm. who and that scene hung around in my mind so it was the mountain plus sing a plus rose but it was well before I knew who any of them were yeah um and I recently came across uh, this really great quote that describes that process of finding out who your characters are mm. and and what is going on in a book that you're trying to write and it's by Robin McKinley, who is a fabulous writer mm -hmm. and uh, and rewriter of legends. So right. if you don't know her stuff, no, she's not Scottish, I'm sorry. <laughs> but she is really, really good, a fabulous writer. And she wrote this about the process, her process. I've long said my books happen to me. They tend to blast in from nowhere, seize me by the throat and howl, write me, write me now. <laughs> but they rarely stand still long enough for me to see what and who they are before they hurtle away again. And so I spend a lot of my time running after them, like a thrown rider after an escaped horse saying, wait for me, wait for me, <laughs> and waving my notebook in the air. That, that quote really spoke to me. I, I do spend a lot of time chasing stories. Right. And so it all just starts with a vision in your head somewhere, and then there's this 
chasing after it. Yeah, yeah. Little little scattered blips of, ooh, that's interesting. And, ooh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> and and they, they sort of bang up against each other. Yeah. And then it sort of gradually becomes a book. Yeah. <laughs> Almost like rocks eroding and shaping themselves. Yeah, or, or yeah. that bit in space where, where, where the, the, um, the bits of the planet were bashed into another bit of a planet and then they make mm. another other planet. <laughs> right. <laughs> you tell I'm a scientist. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, that's, it's not a tidy process mm. for me. <laughs> well, it's all come together very tidily, though. Um, rocks. Uh, and geology and uh, sort of general structure of the earth is very, uh, very important in Walking Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So in Walking Mountain, um, we start at the end of the world. It's a, it's a story that begins with an ecological, environmental catastrophe. Um, and so, and then, and then we are blasted thousands of years even ahead of that moment and to see this world rebuilding itself and then facing its own catastrophe and how they, 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 they come to terms with that. So it's a story about environment, natural disasters, climate change is involved as well. Is that a topic that you set out to address when you wrote Walking Mountain? Did you want to sort of do a, a warning tale of what could be? I do often find when I've finished a book that it has all sorts of echoes of issues that concern me. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't start out with issues in mind. But but I think that it's true that if I had lived at a different time, say 100 years in the future or 100 years in the past, I would have written this story differently. Yeah. Um, and if somebody else who's living now had written this story, it also would have come out differently. Um, because the inside of your head is <laughs> unlike the inside of any other head um, and that ever has been or ever will be. I love that thought. That makes me very excited. And this is why I keep trying to encourage new writers mm. not mm. to obsess about whether they're, what they're writing is original. Right. That that feeling that if somebody else has written a book about alien kangaroos, then then they can't. Yeah. Um, but no two writers are ever going to write the same book. Um, if you're writing out of your own head, and you're not just copying what you think the story should be, yours will be unique because the inside of your head is unique. So, if there are any anxious new writers listening, my tip to you is. Stop fussing and just go for it. Yeah, just yeah. do it. <laughs> and, yes, the anxiety of to be of to be original is so yeah. sort of paralyzing, and um, I I find that uh, uh, reading books that are sort of so obvious, so much more obviously tales. Yeah, um, there are there are elements. They they all resemble each other, but they're also different. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the wonderful thing about folk tales and fairy tales is that a lot of them just adapt from each other and and flow into each other and you know who what's it there's only eight real stories in the world anyway yeah. <laughs> oh rubbish, <laughs> rubbish. seven are archetypal yeah. <laughs> and the archetypes are all just material yeah. to use yeah yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which sort of brings us to Naomi Mitchison, who we've been discussing uh, in this episode. And she wrote so many books for adults and children that she couldn't keep count. And <laughs> I was fascinated as we were reading Travel Light that there were elements from her, some of her other books that made it into mm. Travel Light. Uh, but Travel Light 
uh, seemed to, you know, was a book that was sort of ostensibly written for children, um, even though it's a tale that um, you know absolutely enjoyable by <laughs> readers, readers of all ages. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, I wanted to ask you, Joan, whether you know in your whole career, like, did you had did you decide at a particular point that you wanted to write for uh, people of a certain age or younger readers? Um, well, I'm not sure that I that I would class travel light as a children's book. I mean, sure, I'd there be is, interested to yeah. know if that was yeah. the author's decision or mm. whether it was a publisher's mm. decision. Absolutely. I know what you mean with, by that. There's certain elements of it that seem, or maybe maybe it seems very adult sophisticated to us now. Maybe it was different in the time that she wrote it. Maybe that was it was considered okay for children to read that kind of book then. But see, the thing is, I'm I'm ashamed to say. Um, Naomi Mitchison was a new name for me. Right. So uh, I'm always looking for new writers too. Mm. So I'm really grateful. Thank you for introducing <laughs> me to her or her to me, whichever is the <laughs> way of putting that. So I've, I've, but I, but I was very happy to read Travel Light, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't think I was going to, um, because it says on the back of my copy, "No one knows better how to spin a fairy tale," and I am not a fan of fairy tales. Oh, oh really? No. This is there's that inevitability about the things that happen and it's arbitrary and it doesn't matter what the characters do you know they're gonna get you know something <laughs> is gonna happen and the characters are often flat they're two-dimensional they're kind of disney fodder right um, and and at first Hala's character in in travel light didn't really engage me because i think i had that it's a fairy tale uh, mm. sitting on my shoulder but then at the end of part one where she starts to go dark and and, and yes. the gold starts to bite. Suddenly, I was I was hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so and the time that she spent in Constantinople with the three men, it mm. had that fabulous brooding danger. Yes, um, it started to really feel like a three D novel and not just a two D right fairy tale. Though I was kind of disappointed at the end when she opted as Valkyrie as a career. Having said that, you take the work you can get. <laughs> um, for me, um, I, I'm not sure that I necessarily decided to write for children. I mean, I write for adults, too. Yeah. My theory is um, that it's more that story ideas come to you with an age range attached. Right. Um, Having said that, we've been getting really good responses from adults reading Silver Skin mm. and Walking Mountain, haven't we? So my theory may be rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so folk tale didn't influence you at all in the writing of Walking Mountain, or even um, Silver Skin as well. That surprises me. Well, when you're totally immersed and engrossed and obsessed with the world that you're writing about it's more like documentary you know? right <laughs> right just, you're I, yeah, I absolutely believe everything that and I'm you're writing, writing from yeah. your head rather yeah. than from a sort of sense of a canon right yeah. Yeah. yeah you get it gets you get quite um yes inside your own head mm. I mean it does make you seem quite crazy <laughs> but, but no I, I really should have said yes my blood is right, right. Right. <laughs> I'm deploying <laughs> these yeah <laughs> wrong person can't do it sorry just because you you there's such a sense of journey adventure peril and and all that the, the kind of ingredients that are in all the great folk tales and 
and um, fairy stories. So well, obviously, yeah. I must have been, you know, I've, been, I've been shaped yeah, by yeah, the yeah. things it's that I've read and the things yeah. that I've experienced and the things yeah. that I've not experienced but thought about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there is. I, I used to tell kids in schools that, that, that there was soup between my ears and that mm-hmm. everything I'd ever experienced went into the soup yes, and then and at various moments odd bits would come bob- bobbing up to the top mm. and then you'd skim it off but it, I think I revolted <laughs> so many children I don't know that children like yeah. soup very much no. <laughs> well actually when I was thinking of it in my head I didn't like it <laughs> so now I've decided to go with cabinet of curiosity uh, so you've got different things in all the pretty little drawers. It's not gross yeah. at all. Yeah. Just pull them out at random, put them on the table and see what story comes from that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's better. Should I go with that? Well, I, d- I don't mind the soup analogy. Not mind the soup analogy. <laughs> it is a cold day. Yeah. <laughs> so the world of Rocky Mountain is, is quite fantastical. Um, and it's got, it's got lots of different dimensions. So we've got the world of the drovers... That's who we were introduced to right at the beginning of the novel, whose job it is is to herd comets. <laughs> and they seem to exist on a, a, a sort of on a more timeless or in deep time. Is yeah. that right? In a sort of space or more ethereal world? I mean, yeah. they're not on planet Earth. Is that? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. until. <laughs> read on, dear reader. <laughs> and then we've got the world of Pima and Singe after it. Um, which is very much on the earth, but it's not really the earth that we recognise. Um, so can you say where these worlds came from mm-hmm. and how they relate to each other? Um, I do want to say I didn't have Scotland in mind at all. Right. When right. I, when well, I, see, I didn't... When I was writing I, Walking Man, but yeah. someone pointed out to me afterwards, um, when the book was finished, that the drivers... Are a lot like drovers. In yeah. fact, you're yes. calling them drovers. Oh yes, I. That's a that's a um, oh, Freudian that? slip. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting. I thought, whoa! I didn't know I was doing oh, that. God. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. I've been saying drovers to the whole time. Talking to. <laughs> yeah, I've just assimilated it into my head as a drover. Uh, yeah, and, and my 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 book is doomed. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, but the world, the the, the space. The, the actual normal world of the drivers, yeah. um, it, it acts as a kind of a bracket mm. to, to the book. Um, but the journey that the three main characters take, um, it, that takes them through different worlds within yeah. a world, within, yeah. within planet Earth, mm-hmm. though at a different time. Um, so they're, they're, they're traveling through different landscapes and yeah. cultures and dangers. Yeah. Yeah. And the drivers have a saying, geography makes history. And, and that applies to fictional worlds as well as it does to, to real worlds. Mm. Um, I also, I, I write a lot of historical fiction, um, ah. and I find getting under the skin of a science fiction or a fantasy or a sci-fi fantasy world is a very similar process to, mm-hmm. to getting under the skin of a historical period. Right. Um, you, you need to understand why things are the way they are, mm. um, how they make sense to the people who are in those, that, those worlds or that time. Like, I mean, just the first example that came to my mind was um, medieval medicine. You know, for example, it's built on logical conclusions, mm. yeah. but it doesn't start from the same scientific starting points, premises that our medicine yeah. starts from. Right. So they weren't all just crazy. <laughs> they were starting from inter- a different... There was a sort a, of internal logic to yeah, it that you had to access. Internal logic is essential. Yeah. Um, and when I talk with... with 
um, new writers who are working on fantasy worlds or sci-fi worlds, um, I, I try and tell them that you really do not want to tell the reader everything you know yeah. mm-hmm. um, about the world that your characters right. yeah. inhabit. But it has to be absolutely clear to the reader um, that the story is sort of floating along on top of an entirely consistent ocean of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I made that up in my head and then I thought, I'm not sure that metaphor actually works. But it makes no, sense. No, I to think me. it does. Yeah. Great. Um, Excellent. And um, I, one of the things that I loved about getting to the end of Walking Mountain uh, was to discover the, glo- the glossary at the back. <laughs> oh, um, so much fun. And, and, and to think that that sort of ocean of reality is, 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 is sort of all contained there, but not, and it just, pops it's um pop it pops up in the story at different moments and you can read the glossary and think back to where all of these things appeared in the story or maybe not depending on how good your memory is (laughs) (laughs) just need to read it again yes but it it, it's an absolutely amazingly created world um, you don't doubt it for a second, even though it's not a world that we know of. <laughs> no, it's a documentary, I tell you. <laughs> it's real. We've just not found it yet. <laughs> so we've been talking about the drovers' drivers, <laughs> and we thought, well, why not get to know them a little bit better in this podcast? So Joan is going to very kindly read the introduction, the first chapter of uh, Walking Mountain, we, we, where we are introduced to the end of the world. Chapter one, the rogue. It shouldn't have happened. There were strict rules about leaving the herd to its own devices. That close to a busy solar system, the drivers should have been on constant high alert. They were experienced. They understood the dangers, but it had been so long since they'd had a party and the herd of meteors had seemed so peaceful, grazing contentedly on the outer asteroid belt. There had been no hint of trouble, and the drivers had let down their guard. They tethered their comets in a circle and mingled and danced and shared stories and jokes and laughter. After the party, when they counted the herd in preparation for setting off once again, no one could believe it at first. They checked and checked again, but there was no denying the stark fact. The count was one short. One of the meteors had escaped, and not just a small one, a huge bull meteor. The drivers looked at each other, waiting. Who will go after it? There was a pause, and then, I will. I will. I will. And so it was decided the herd must move on. The drivers knew that if they stayed, they'd overgraze the belt. The three volunteer drivers would go into the solar system, find the rogue meteor and bring it away again before it could do any harm. Then they would do their best to catch up with the rest of the herd. If not, we'll meet at harvest, said one of the volunteers. At harvest? Surely long before that, squeaked the youngest. Of course, of course, they reassured. There was no time to lose. Three by three, the drivers turned their comets and began to manipulate the magnetic field round the edges of the herd, gently detaching the meteors from the asteroids and nudging them back into the depths of space. 
back onto the great circuit. The three drivers in search of the missing meteor moved anxiously inwards towards the system's central star. They checked each moon and planet they passed for any sign of recent impact. They lost precious time at an inner asteroid belt, looking for any indication that the rogue was somewhere near, accruing yet more mass. We should have found it by now, the youngest of the three wittered nervously. We should have found it. The others said nothing but urged their comet forward at ever greater speed. And then they did find it. They spotted their rogue in time to see the blue-green planet it was streaking towards, but too late to adjust its path. All the herding skills the drivers had amassed were of no use. It was too late to send all those tons of accelerating rock off the collision course, send the meteor safely past the planet, back towards clear space. There was nothing they could do. In silent horror, the drivers watched the sudden flare as the rogue screamed through the blue-green planet's atmosphere, trailing a tail of flame. They watched the sickening judder of the world as it hit, the giant circle of the meteor's impact growing outwards at ferocious speed. They watched the dust and ash from a hundred triggered volcanoes begin to rise up, a hundred plumes that caught on the winds and melded into one great towering canopy till the entire planet was wrapped in a blanket of grey. The drivers knew what the greyness meant. They knew what they had to do. And if you want to know what happens next... You'll have to read the book. Thanks to Joan Lennon for her wonderful reading from Walking Mountain. I can't recommend it enough as a wonderful, wonderful holiday read. Yes. For people of all ages. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. 11 and up. Yeah. 11 to 99, like they say <laughs> on the games. Yeah. <laughs> we do have just one other little piece of business. Yeah. Um, this month in July, we are publishing Charlie McGarry's novel first in a crime series new crime series the ghost of helen addison and to go with the ghost of helen addison there is a podcast called the debut podcast made by neil white and martin gregg of backpage press and it is just excellent yeah so we're not the the lid yeah on how to on writing a debut yeah, and, and the and the um, the process of thought to page to finished book. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there are just six episodes and yeah. you can download them at debutpodcast.com. And it's also available to download on iTunes along with this. So you can listen to this and then download Debut Podcast. <laughs> we'll put the link in the blurb. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks again for listening. Um, Next time we are delving deep into one of the great Scottish classic novels um, back in time almost 200 years ago to the very terrifying um, 
Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. And we're also going to be talking to one of our own authors, Sheila Shkakovsky, who has just written um, a book called Enlightenment Edinburgh, which is a great guide to Enlightenment Edinburgh. So we'll be pairing the dark world of Calvinist doctrine with the, the free spreading of ideas that Enlightenment Edinburgh brought to us. I hope you can join us then. We'll see you then. See you next time.